Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. Before I jump into the message, I obviously want to address uh, what we all know happened on Friday, the overturning of a nearly 50-year-old law in our country, overturning Roe vs. Wade. And I am grateful for your applause, uh, but let me assure you, especially those of us who applauded, uh, this is not the end. We've only just begun. And there's still, in our state, legal confusion over what this means for us. There's a 120-year-old law, pre-Roe law, that was in existence, but then in March, Governor Ducey passed a law that he said uh, superseded the pre-row law that abortions would be illegal at 15 weeks. And so not even all of the abortion clinics in our state have shut down. But I I just wanna remind us of two things. First, if you're a woman in this room who has had an abortion and has not told anyone, please don't take the applause as a shot against you. Uh, The people who are celebrating are celebrating life and I hope, and this is one of the things I love about our church, that that for us, this is not a political issue. We're not clapping saying we won. We're clapping saying babies did. And we're clapping in the house of the Lord saying, God, thank you for moving the pieces in such a way that more so now than at any point in the last 50 years, the unborn are being protected more but we're not done. Half of the states, it will still be legal. So, so please, if you're uh, a woman who has had an abortion, if you need help or care in any way, it's what we do. We're not here to expose, we're here to serve. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, I, I just, uh, we need to still remain in prayer. And I hope, and this is to to put a little bit of responsibility on those of us who are are very passionate about this, uh, and that's wonderful, uh, but just something to think about. Uh, This is an opportunity of my lifetime for the church to step up and care for these women and for the orphan. And so I hope you'll be prayerful about what that means for you. And allow the Holy Spirit to lead you because there's going to be an inordinate need for help. And I'm grateful that our church, some of you, Holly and I were getting texts and calls this weekend about the House of Bethany. And just to give you a little bit of an update, we, we were looking at a place more seriously than anything else. There were four units, uh, which means basically three, one for a live-in caregiver and then three for the women. And uh, I would say, I don't want to speak on behalf of the elders, two of them are in this room right now, but um, I, I don't think there was a complete piece that that was the right size. And so we're just, we're continuing to pray. Uh, and there are options out there, so be praying for us because we want to do the right thing. We, and the right thing is give the Lord whatever he asks for. Okay? So uh, I'm grateful for what happened on Friday. I'm even more grateful to be in a church that I know will step up to care in any way necessary uh, as we see this roll out in our state, all right? Okay, I love you so much and I'm grateful for the way that you love others, whether they're on your side of the aisle or not, all right? And that's kind of what we're talking about and it's just divinely ironic and simply sarcastic that the Lord would have me teach this weekend on what I'm teaching on. We're finishing our stumbling block series, and uh, some of you are gonna be shocked at the stumbling block we're talking about this weekend. You you probably don't see this one coming, and if you have a Bible, I wanna ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter two, put a marker in 2 Thessalonians two. The stumbling block we're finishing this series with is Jesus. Jesus 
as a stumbling block. And I want to show you this in scripture so you don't think this is my opinion. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 2, says, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up, speaking to believers, as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This phrase literally means will not be disappointed. Will not be disappointed in him. We talked about this point last week, verse seven. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus is not only the cornerstone of the church, he is also the stumbling block for the world. And in this message, we're going to talk a little bit about some things some of us may have never heard about before, but I assure you, especially our young people are hearing a lot about these things. We're going to talk a little bit about what's called progressive Christianity, which simply means it's this belief that Christianity must progress as society and culture progress. Another way to say it is the further away we get from Jesus, the further away Christianity gets from what it really meant to be a Christ follower. We're gonna talk about progressive Christianity. We're also gonna talk about something called deconstructionism, which is a movement right now that is getting a lot of steam, especially uh, during COVID. And, and I'm gonna define it for you. But some of us, I know we haven't heard these terms and I heard it Thursday night. I didn't even know this was a thing. And I wanna really speak to three different people. If you're here this morning and you'd say, I am thinking about deconstructing my faith, or maybe you're in the middle of deconstructing your faith. I want you to hear, if at any point in this message I seem a little bit strong, I assure you, it's not towards you. But let me also be honest and say, when I do get strong in this message, especially talking about deconstructionism, I am going at the one who's going at you. So just know, I, I, I have not, the church is a wonderful place to ask questions. But I do believe there is a movement, a demonic movement, wrapped up in deconstructionism to get people to move away from Jesus. Also, let me say, some of us need to really pay attention to this because we, we have some people in our lives, while you might never deconstruct your faith or even entertain progressive Christianity, you possibly have some people in your life who are right now thinking about deconstructing their faith or deconverting, walking away from Jesus. So you may not need to pay attention for yourself, but you may need to pay attention for someone you love. All right? I want to give you three things. We're not answering two questions the way we have the last two months, but I want to give you three things. Basically answering one question, how is Jesus the stumbling block or why is Jesus a stumbling block for the unbelieving world? Here's point number one, answer number one, because Jesus is the word of God. John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word. Same phrase as Genesis in Genesis, in the beginning. But this precedes that in the beginning of Genesis, before anything was created, was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, speaking of Jesus. Now, one of the things we're seeing today is an attack on Scripture. And one of the easiest ways, or the fastest ways to attack Scripture is via inerrancy. The word inerrancy or inerrant means without error. To go at the Bible and say the Bible is filled with errors. And let me, let me just submit to you why it's dangerous to create a Bible with errors in your mind or in your heart. Creating a Bible with errors opens the door for you to become the judge of Scripture. Well, this, this is real, but this is not. This is in, this is out. This part was without error, divinely inspired, but this part, a, a human hand messed up. Which leads then, after years of thinking like this and talking like this, can and often does lead to, is the Bible even for today? 
I know it was for then, but is it even for now? It doesn't seem like it applies the way it used to. One of the biggest reasons to deny inerrancy is to be able to deny something in the Bible you don't like. And so you just, you put it on fallible writers. Let me, let me say, I, I'm, you're going to hear me use this term writers, not author. While there are many writers in scripture, there's only one divine author. Okay. Second Timothy 3.16 says all, 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 all scripture is breathed out by God. But wait a minute, Preston. So scripture is breathed out by God, yet it's written by human hands who were fallible. That's right, they were fallible. But remember, who inspired scripture? Who is the one breathing the scripture? It's the spirit of God, also called the spirit of truth, who divinely enabled these human hands to write beyond their natural abilities. You also need to know inerrancy applies to the original autographs. Now, I'm gonna, I'm, this whole message is just teaching. Okay? Some of you like when I preach, and the disappointment message is the literal opposite to this message. Okay? We're just going to teach because a lot of us don't even know some of these things. And we're going to have people asking us questions, and we need to be ready to answer these questions. We don't just stand on God's word. We need to know why. And we also need to know the bullets that might be fired at Scripture by someone who doesn't believe Scripture is the inerrant word of God. Inerrancy applies to the original autographs. Now, we have many, 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 many copies of New Testament books. Understand that. We've got tons. And you will hear some say there are more variations in our copies of New Testament books than there are actually words in the New Testament. And let me just put you at ease, all right, so you can trust the reliability of Scripture. Even one of the most noted New Testament scholars who happens to be an atheist says... The thousands upon thousands of thousands of variations in our New Testament manuscripts, none of them affect the nature of Jesus or any orthodox belief of Christianity. That's an atheist who says that. Okay, it, it's, it's more details. So let me try and <laughs> illustrate it like this. Uh, I dropped Riley off, our oldest, uh, this, this week at the airport to go back to college for preseason stuff. And so... Uh, let's just say that I was going to go visit her tomorrow. And this was a planned trip. She knows I'm coming. And she texts me today and she says, hey, daddy, I have a few bills that came up over the summer while I was gone. Uh, can you help pay them? I need $1,000 when you come. Okay, this is a hypothetical situation, okay? Daddy, can you please bring $1,000 when you come? I'm driving in my truck. I don't want to text, so I just say, Siri, text Riley. Got it. $1,000. Be there tomorrow. Let's meet at Starbucks on Main Street at 5 p.m. Siri sends the text, but sends it like this. Gone it. $1,000. Be there tomorrow. Let's meet at Starbucks on Moon Street at 5 p.m. Riley responds back, huh? I see what Siri said. Siri, text Riley. Got it, $1,000. Be there tomorrow. Let's meet at Starbucks on Main Street at 5 p.m. Siri sends the following message. Got it, 1,000 buns. Be there tomorrow. Let's meet at Trulux on Main Street at 5 p.m. Riley says, you're hilarious. You're talking to Siri, aren't you? And I say again, Siri, text Riley. Got it. $1,000. Be there tomorrow. Let's meet at Starbucks on Main Street at 5 p.m. Siri sends the following message. Text Riley. Goon it. 1,000 bucks. Be there tomorrow. Let's meet at Starbucks on Main Street 
at 5 p.m. Okay, I could keep doing this and doing this and do this to help you understand this, this question right here. If I sent five or six texts like that to Riley, could you have confidence, even if they were all a little bit different, could you have confidence that Riley was gonna meet me tomorrow at Starbucks on Main Street in Springfield with $1,000 in hand? How many of you would have confidence that she could figure it out off five or six texts that she pieced together? Okay. What if I sent 50 texts? How many of you would be confident that she would figure it out and meet me there and understand what the truth of the text was? Okay. If you raise your hand, you can have complete confidence in the reliability of Scripture. Because while there are some variations, none of them are so important that they affect the nature of Jesus or orthodoxy of Christianity. They're details. They're details. And there are so many copies of the original autographs that we trust the reliability of the inerrant original autograph of Scripture breathed out by God. Can you see it? Now, I know that some of us have lots of perspectives on Scripture. And rather than ask you, how do you see Scripture? How do you see Scripture? How do you see Scripture? I'd rather ask this question. How did Jesus see Scripture? Because if you're a Christ follower, what's more important than how you see Scripture is how the one you follow saw and sees Scripture. So let me just give you four things very quickly, and we'll move to point two. First, Jesus saw Scripture as divinely inspired. Matthew chapter four, verse four, the scriptures say, Jesus is saying this, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus elevated the words of scripture. Second, Jesus believed scripture was without error. John 17, 17, Jesus says to the father, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Jesus didn't say the Bible has some truth. Jesus said the Bible is truth. Third, Jesus had the highest view of scripture. This is a phrase you'll hear in theological circles. It's one of the things I love about my reformed friends. They have what's called a high view of scripture. It's a beautiful thing. It means they hold and esteem scripture at a very high level and so do we. It's one of the things I have in common with my, my reformed friends. I love scripture, but Jesus didn't have a high view of scripture. He had the highest view of scripture. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, don't under, misunderstand why I've come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets, what we would call the Old Testament. He said, I didn't, I didn't come to rip up the book. Watch what he says next. No, 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 no. I came to accomplish every page of the book. That's the highest view of scripture there is. Verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Fourth, Jesus believed scripture was a primary weapon against Satan. Matthew chapter four, Satan tempts Jesus. How did Jesus respond all three times? It is written, it is written, it is written. Just think about this for a second. If Jesus knew scripture had errors, Jesus never would have used it as his primary weapon in that moment against Satan. Because Satan would have come back and countered with, now let me show you the error on this page and the error on this page and the error on this page. Jesus used it as his primary weapon in the wilderness against Satan. He saw it as a weapon. I think this is one of the biggest reasons why there's a war against scripture. Because Satan knows it's the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Point number two, second reason why I believe Jesus is a stumbling block is Jesus is a rock not able to be, de not able to be deconstructed. Jesus is a rock not able to be deconstructed. Think about it like this. How many of you, when you were growing up, you remember playing the game king or queen of the hill? Remember playing that game? And all of us, especially those among us who are competitive, if someone established themselves as the king or the queen of the hill, I'm competitive now. I'm gonna I'm take you out. 
because I want to be the king of the hill. This is the point of the game, right? There's something in us that when someone says, I'm the king of the hill, if we're playing that game, we want to take them off, off the top of the hill. Here's the deal. Jesus isn't just the king of the hill. And he's not just the king of all kings. And he's not just the king of the universe. Jesus is the king of all. You don't think some people are going to want to knock him off that perch? Here's the good news. He'll never get knocked off that throne. It's his and his alone. But there are those who want to try and knock him off. Every time I hear this term, deconstruction or deconstructionism, which is the movement of deconstruction, I think of what Jesus said in in John chapter 2. The Pharisees say, if you're the one, show us a sign. Listen to what Jesus says in response. He says, destroy this temple. You want a sign? Destroy this temple. He's talking about his body. And in three days, I will raise it up. Okay, let me give you Preston's paraphrase. Okay, this is from my competitive viewpoint. The Pharisees say to Jesus, if you're the one, prove it. And Jesus goes, deconstruct this. And let's just see what happens. I give it three days, I'll be right back. Deconstruct this. Now, what is deconstructionism? Well, if if you study this out, there's actually not an agreed upon definition for the word deconstruction. So I'll just kind of give you my perspective. It seems as though there's enough agreement to say that deconstructionism is the act of deconstructing your faith like this, tearing it apart brick by brick to see what's left at the end of the demolition process. Tearing it apart brick by brick to see what's left. One of the questions, now now if you're someone, please hear me because I know since this is the point on deconstruction, If you're deconstructing your faith right now, I am glad you're here. And you need to hear, I'm not talking to you right now. But I am talking about someone who whet your appetite regarding deconstruction. There's a question that those leading the deconstructionism movement ask. Do you have enough faith to deconstruct your faith? sounds like just such a big, bold question. I want to have enough faith. Preston, do you have enough faith to deconstruct your faith? Do you know what that's like? That's like saying, Preston, do you have enough faith in your truck to protect you in an accident that you will, after service, go 140 miles an hour down the highway and intentionally crash to see if it will save your life? Furthermore, it's also like saying, Preston, Do you have enough faith in the love you and Holly have to give her the right to go cheat and you go cheat too? Do you have enough faith that the love you have is so real that even after cheating, you'll come back together? Let me just tell you, the way to prove love is not to rip it to shreds. That is not how you prove you love. Sacrifice is. It's what you lay down, not what you tear down. I'm going to make a strong statement, and please, if if you're deconstructing your faith, I'd love to talk to you after the service, but this is probably the strongest statement about deconstructionism in the message. Deconstructionism is a demonic strategy for getting people to walk away from Jesus. Flip over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to read this together. I want you to see it in your own Bible. I really hope you bring your Bible to church. I know we have phones and all that, and I'm not trying to to harp on anybody. I, I just want you to see it in Scripture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Okay, what was happening in this moment, there were those saying Jesus had already returned and everybody who was still alive was left behind. Okay, there's the context of this. Verse three, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, the coming of the Lord, 
will not come unless the falling away comes first. The Bible says there will be a mega movement away from Jesus immediately before the return of Jesus. I think it's entirely possible this wave of progressive Christianity, which started with the emergent church about 15 years ago, and now is lumping in deconstructionism. I think it's entirely possible that what we're seeing was prophesied thousands of years ago. That before Jesus returns, many will walk away from Jesus. There will be a rebellion, an abandonment of the truth. The Greek word in 2 Thessalonians 2 is apostia. In theological circles, it's called the great apostasy, a defection from the true God, from the Bible, and from the Christian faith. Now, let me come back to those who might be deconstructing right now, or you've already deconstructed and you just came with a friend or family member today. It's okay to have doubts. Doubts are not a sin. Jude, verse 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. But doubt isn't the same as deconverting. Those are two very different things. Listen, truth is never hurt by the questions. The capital T truth is never hurt by the questions, never hurt by your doubts. It's okay to have some doubts. In fact, those who examine what they believe and why they believe it they're actually walking out, 2 Corinthians verse thir uh, chapter 13, verse 5. They're examining what they believe. It's scriptural. But I'm not convinced that the goal of the deconstructionism movement is to understand the Christian faith. It appears to me that the goal is to undermine it. And that's why so many are leaving. Now, I'm going to present a question that is for those of us who might have someone in our lives who, who are thinking about deconstructing their faith, but it's also for those who are personally thinking about it or maybe already have. Here's the question. Why do people deconstruct their faith? What's, what's the why? In studying this, I'm going to give you two things that it, it, it kind of seems. There, there seems to be some, some commonality, okay? I can't give you all the things that I saw, but I wanna show you two reasons why I see people. And let, and let me just say, if you're deconstructing your faith, I think you should answer this question. Why? Why are you doing it? Because I personally believe if people deconstructing their faith would deconstruct why they're deconstructing, I doubt most of them would end up deconverting. Because what I've found, I don't think the reason they're deconstructing their faith is Jesus. I think it's other things. First, what I saw, what I've seen, it's church hurt. Church hurt seems to be the number one reason why people deconstruct their faith. And let me just say, I'm not, I don't disagree. I've seen the church hurt. We meet with people all the time who've been hurt by the church. I wish it were not so. So I'm not saying it's untrue. As the capital C church, we've done this to ourselves. But let me just say, the solution to bad community is not abandoning community. It's helping to be a part of refining it. Which means don't run away from it. But if you were hurt by the church and that's led to you deconstructing your faith, let me just say, I agree with you. The church has ignored some of its problems in order to protect the reputation of the church. And in doing so, the church created more problems for the church. And I'm sorry we've done it. It's not right. But I just wanna lovingly submit this to anybody who, who is deconstructing their faith or thinking about it because of church hurt. The local church was never meant to be put on the same level as the perfect Jesus. Because the local church, and please hear me, I don't use this as an excuse. The Bible's clear. I'm gonna stand before God and have to be responsible, more responsible than just me as a believer, okay? So please, I'm not using this as an excuse. Not at all. 
But the church is led by imperfect people. And some people put the church on the same level as Jesus. We're just humans. I'm a human. I'm not perfect. I'm not even trying to be. I'm grateful for the God who saved me in my imperfections. But I understand the church has hurt some people and that hurt when some, many people, in my opinion, have deconstructed their faith as a way simply to say, I don't ever want to be hurt like that again. So rather than just leave the church, I'm going to completely turn down my faith. That's like me. We talked about this several weeks ago when, when I got hurt by a girl, I said, I'm never dating again. I will never date another girl again. I'm done. I'm just going to be alone. Well, that lasted 12 months. Thank God it did, because I met my future wife. Think of what I would have missed out on in the same way. I'm not saying it's wrong for you to feel hurt. I understand what the church, or even more clearly, the church people have done. And listen, I'm praying about doing a series starting next Easter called Don't Give Up, where we go through all of this, because one message is not enough time. But don't give up. Don't give up on the cross. Don't give up on scripture. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't give up on the Father. Don't give up on the church. Don't give up on church people. Church hurt happens because of church people. And if you've experienced hurt, I'm sorry. But let me also say, I don't think that's a good enough reason to abandon the faith. Let me say it like this. Give us, the church, a chance to make it right. Church hurt is real, but deconstruction is not the cure for it. Here's the second reason why I believe people deconstruct their faith. Bad teaching. This is why I think deconstructionism exploded during COVID. Because the church, it appears to some, has kind of taught for years and years. Well, if you just give, when the stock market goes down, your money won't. If you just do the right thing, the wrong thing will never happen to you. If you have Jesus in your boat, you'll never experience storms. Okay, that's the exact opposite of what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches have Jesus in your boat because of the storms, in the middle of the storm. But to some people, what it seems like the church taught, has taught all these years is if you have Jesus in your boat, you won't have storms. And then the storms came, a worldwide pandemic that brought on all kinds of storms. And we watched people. We as a church watched people leave the faith. And in my opinion, part of the reason was they got some bad teaching along the way. They didn't expect things to be hard. And once there were storms and they felt they were promised that they had Jesus in their boat, there wouldn't be storms. Once there were storms, they thought, well, if Jesus isn't going to make my storms go away, then I'm just going to go away from Jesus. At the core of this, it's just very, very bad teaching. The best way to describe deconstructionism, in my opinion, because I'd say this to you, if you're deconstructing or thinking about deconstructing your faith, Please don't grab the sledgehammer of deconstruction without first having a blueprint for reconstruction. Deconstruction goes a little bit like this, and I'll apply it to your television. Let's say you go home today, and you decide, I'm going to tear apart the biggest TV I have in my house, down to the screws. I'm going to completely take it apart, but before I do it, I'm going to rip up the instruction manual. So that's why we started with scripture, life's instruction manual that God gave us to help us understand how to be a follower of Jesus, how to live it out, how to walk it out. So I rip up the instruction manual. I tear apart my TV down to the screws. How do you think I'm going to feel? How are you going to feel once I come into your house and say, okay, let's see you put it back together again, Humpty Dumpty. You don't have the technical know-how to reassemble that TV, and you ripped up the instruction manual. Of course it's going to be overwhelming to rebuild your TV. 
This is why I would say, if you're considering deconstructing, don't start the process without having a blueprint for reconstruction. Deconstructing your faith in God, apart from God, leads to no longer believing in God. The best example in scripture is Mark chapter nine. The father of the demon-possessed boy, he actually says to Jesus, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. This guy teaches us how to handle our doubts. Bring them to Jesus. He can handle it. Bring them to Jesus. Jesus, I believe, but I have some doubts. Help me where I don't believe. Help me with my doubts. Jesus, I bring them to you. You are the word. You are the manual. Help me with my doubts. Why did this man come to Jesus? I think there's a very specific reason because there's no measure of truth you can find all by yourself. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. What does that mean? Preston, there is no measure of truth you find where the Holy Spirit didn't help you find it. The Holy Spirit helps us find every bit of truth we find. It's not me. It's not a teacher. A teacher can be used by the Holy Spirit, but it isn't inherently because of the teacher. It's because the Holy Spirit used the teacher to help me find that which is true. Here's number three, the third reason why. I'm having to cut so much out of this message, but we're going to have to do a whole series on this. Third reason why I think Jesus is such an easy, stum easy stumbling block for the unbelieving world, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He, in fact, went on record and said this about himself as well. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, I wish I had enough time to break this down, but let me just point your attention to two things, okay? First, John 14, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Okay, these two words, I am, so important in scripture. I'll just remind you of one instance, John 18. Remember when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus? They said, are you the one? And Jesus uses three words. He says, I am he. And what happened to all the soldiers? They fell out powerless. Why? Because the words I am from the great I am's mouth are always more powerful than we can handle in our human minds or bodies. They fell out powerless. And Jesus said, I am he. Jesus is using these same words in John chapter 14. I am the way. I am the truth, I am the life. But he's not just using the powerful words, I am. He also, and I don't wanna get into the weeds too much, he uses what's called in English grammar, uh, the definite article. Here's what that means. Accurately translated, Jesus says this, I am the only way. He uses the definite article. Then he uses the definite article again, a second time. He says, I am the only only truth. Then he uses the definite article a third time and any time something is done three times in succession in scripture, it is for emphatic emphasis. Jesus says, and I am the only way to eternal life. I am the only. Does it surprise you at all that anybody who would make that comment and it be true, does it surprise you some people would try and push against that? It shouldn't. Now, I, I got to give you two things before we, we finish up as it relates to truth. Because when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, deconstructionists, those leading the movement, have another phrase that I, I heard very consistently. Believe those who are searching for the truth. Doubt those who say they found it. Believe those who say they're searching for the truth. Doubt those who say they find it. And in fact, I saw a couple who kind of had this tone towards people who say they found the truth. 
oh, you just haven't reached a measure of faith to where you could deconstruct your faith. And it's kind of a, a patronizing tone of, isn't that sweet that you think you know? You may have never heard this conversation before, but I assure you our young people are in the middle of this conversation. I could give you a list of well-known people on this earth who were at one point believed to be followers of Jesus Christ, who now are saying they left the faith and they are no longer following Jesus. The list is long. This conversation is being had all around us. Let me give you two things about truth. And these are two of the lies found in the movement. Lie number one, and this is relativism at work, there is no truth. There is no truth. Okay, in order to really understand this, we gotta understand two types of truth. There's subjective truth and objective truth. Subjective truth claims are those held by individual subjects. In other words, a matter of personal opinion. For instance, if I said the best movie ever is Top Gun Maverick. Okay, that's an opinion. That's a subjective truth claim. Objective truth claims are those where the truth does not reside in the subject who holds the opinion, but in the very truth of the object being described. Here's an example of an objective truth claim. My truck is black. That's objective. You can say till you're blue in the face, Preston's truck is white, but that's not going to change the fact that my truck is black. Now, if I said the best trucks are black trucks, or the best trucks are Ford trucks, which I believe to be true, by the way. <laughs> that's not objective, that's subjective, right? So we have people who are saying, okay, this is truth, but it's just opinion. See, if what we say is true, we're opinion not based on the written and errant and fallible word of God, then it would just be my opinion. But it's not. It's not. It's based in and on this book, which was every word of it breathed out by God. Second lie, all views are equal. I gotta breeze through this, but we gotta talk about this. All views are equal. This is the lie of tolerance. Let me give you a, a present day definition for tolerance. This kind of appears to be the definition. People describe tolerance these days as all views have equal merit and none should be considered better than the other. This is what's called a self-refuting statement. In philosophy, that's what this is. All views are equal and no views are more important than the others. Okay. What if my view is all views are not equal because not all views are true? Here's the question I would ask someone who says all views are equal. Is there room in your beliefs for my belief that not all views are equal because not all views are true? It's a self-refuting claim. Let me give you a, a classic view of tolerance and I would even say a biblical view of tolerance. A fair, objective, and permissive attitude toward those those, the people. A permissive attitude toward those whose opinions, practices, race, religion, nationality, etc., differ from one's own. This is where I think the church needs to get a little bit better. A little more loving. So I'm going to give you three D's to remember for godly tolerance. Here's the first one. To have godly tolerance, we have to have difference. There has to be a difference. If there's nothing different between me and someone who doesn't follow Jesus, how can I really make the case that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? There has to be a difference and you have to understand what the differences are. Second thing you need for godly tolerance, you need disagreement. 
We need disagreement. We have the liberty to believe that another view is wrong. And they have the liberty to believe my view is wrong. And I'm okay with that. But the world seems to be defining tolerance as neutrality. Preston, just don't take a position. And that leaves room for everyone. Okay, I'm not trying to take a position. I'm just trying to live out this book. That's all. Deconstruction almost always means adopting views palatable to the unbelieving world. Views on sexuality, views on gender, views on marriage, views on salvation, views on sin, views on hell. Christianity doesn't come down to what I believe. Christianity comes down to who Jesus is. Another mantra for those in this movement, especially those who hammer relativism, which relativism is, my truth is the truth. There's really no such thing as truth. It's just whatever I say is truth. Here's one of the mantras. Christians need to be better at having an open mind. I remember somebody said this to me months ago. <laughs> Preston, the church just needs to have more of an open mind. The church is too closed-minded. You're too closed-minded as a Christian, Preston. And I didn't think about saying this in the moment. I wish I would have had the wherewithal to drop this one-liner. But since I didn't, then I'll drop it now. Never have such an open mind that all your brains spill out. <laughs> like, I want to be open-minded. But, but who, who defined open mind as a mind with no boundaries? It certainly wasn't this book. I get some of, some of us might be a little frustrated with this message. Take it up with a book. And please remember, when we talk about disagreement, disagreement doesn't mean hate. Disagreement does not equate to hate. Let me prove it to you. In this service, we have someone who roots for a team that I don't like. In fact, many of you root for a team. Teams that I quite hate. But I don't hate you. There is someone and some people in this service who actually vehemently hates the team I love. Let's just take a quick poll. How many of you hate the Dallas Cowboys? <laughs> Yet you're still here. You're still here. And you don't hate me. You still hug me. You hate my team, but you don't hate me. Disagreement does not equate to hate. The church cannot be known for hate. That's why you heard me say when we clap, we're not clapping to say we won and the other side lost. I hate to tell you, but we have people of both political perspectives in our church. The we who won were the unborn. That's who won. And Jesus died for the unborn. That's why we care so much. Because Jesus loves the unborn. We can disagree. In fact, we need to. But we can't let it turn into hate, which brings us to the third D. In order to have godly tolerance, we have to have godly demeanor. Here's another way to say it. You can't be a jerk with those you disagree with. John 1:17. for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. I'm way behind, but let me just say it like this. It's wrong for the church to expect the unbelieving world to extend godly tolerance towards us. If you're frustrated that you have to give godly tolerance to them and not expect them to give it back to you, you need to wrestle that to the ground. Because here's what Jesus said to us as believers. I'll personalize it. Preston, they're going to hate you because they hated me. They hate me. That means if you're following me, 
some of these people are going to hate you. You're going to get emails from outsiders that are gross and mean and nasty. Expect it, Preston. Don't expect them to extend godly tolerance towards you, but you better extend godly tolerance towards them. Think about it like this. This kind of hate is not bad. Cavities hate dentists. Cancers hate chemo. Cockroaches hate flashlights. Jesus said, Preston, they're going to hate you. Cavities weren't meant to love dentists. Humans with cavities were. Cancer wasn't meant to love chemo. Humans with cancer were. See, one of the reasons I think some of us, it's so easy to get angry and almost hateful towards others who don't believe what we believe is because we've turned the conversation from a human one into a political one. A conversation about an issue. And let me just remind us all, every conversation Jesus entered was about people. It might have involved an issue, but he never made the issue more important than the person. Listen, Jesus said, this is what it's going to look like in the days before he returns. We should be licking our chops with excitement. We might quite possibly be living in the greatest point in history. Here's the question. Are you ready? And what must be done for you to be ready to live in a day where Jesus calls your number and says, you're in the game, kid. Let's go take over the world. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.